Father, we thank you for the privilege of sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing his word through his apostles. And we ask now that this living word would enter our hearts, that we might know Jesus and that we might obey Jesus. And Father, now we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue on in a, a series we've been working through in, uh, in Romans chapters 1 to 5. We are now in Romans uh, chapter 4. And this is one of those chapters in the Bible uh, that, in which we could spend a lot of time. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you will know his name, the great uh, preacher, doctor from London. Uh, in his sermon series on Romans, he took eight weeks uh, to go through Romans chapter 4, uh, two months to work through this chapter. And uh, I'm afraid I'm going to do the opposite tonight. I'm going to speak briefly to you uh, from Romans 4. But brevity, I trust, doesn't mean levity. And uh, I want to home in tonight uh, on one weighty verse in this passage that I think captures the heart of what Paul is saying uh, in this chapter. And it's verse 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can look at it before you. Verse 5, Romans 4 says, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There are three ideas in this verse that lie at the very center and at the heart of the gospel. And uh, these truths, they deserve our constant meditation and our constant uh, attention and remembrance. And I want to look at these three gospel truths with you tonight. First, God's salvation comes to the one who does not work. Secondly, God's salvation comes to the ungodly. And thirdly, God's salvation comes through faith. First of all, God's salvation comes to the one who does not work. If you've read any uh, amount of the book of Proverbs, you'll know that uh, this rings kind of oddly in our ears. Proverbs 18.9 tells us this. It says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. And most of us have grown up with that kind of uh, proverbial wisdom, that, that the key to success is hard work. Horace, uh, the well-known Roman poet, he wrote, life grants nothing to us mortals without hard work. And these kind of proverbial maxims, these, these nuggets of wisdom that inspire us to hard and to enduring work, they're peppered throughout human history. If you want to eat the nut, you have to break the shell. Work is the father of pleasure. Drop by drop fills the tub. Pray devoutly, but hammer stoutly. Winter comes fast on the lazy. Or this, this is from Goethe. He says, it never occurs to fools that hard work and good fortune are closely united. And one of my favorites of all, no one has ever drowned in sweat. This is stuff that many of us have grown up with. And, and the Bible affirms this kind of wisdom, that there's great value to be found in hard work. A slack hand causes poverty, we read, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 
Even think of our Lord's parable. There are few things in the Bible so startling as what our Lord says to the man who buried his talent. If you'll remember what he says, he says, you wicked and you slothful servant. And we're trained, even from the Bible, to believe that true success consists only in hard work. Just like Will Smith in that tiring movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, success means elbow grease. Success means resolve, determination, focus, refusal to quit, stamina, endurance. But now the Apostle Paul comes to the church and he says, with respect to the most important good in life, with respect to the most important kind of success that can be obtained, namely life everlasting and right standing with God, Paul says with this success, this reward, it's given to the one who does not work at all. And I want to suggest to you tonight that our understanding of the way the world works, it fights against this understanding of the gospel. I'm a teacher, and uh, I can imagine, and so can you, I suppose, if I said to my student class, the first day of classes, here's the thing. You all get an A-plus in this course. I'm going to do your work for you. I want you to learn. I want you to grow, but when it comes time for your grade, I'm going to submit my own flawless work, and I'm going to submit that credit to you. And if I said that in my class, I don't doubt there would be a few kind of cheers in the back row, but most of the class would look at me with their mouths agape. It simply wouldn't make sense to us and to them. And many of us struggle with this still. Many of us tonight have a lurking suspicion that somewhere, somehow, in God's great grade book, our grade depends upon what we do. When we mess up in life, when we fail to obey God the way we ought to have done, when we look back at the veritable litany of offenses that we've committed and failures leading up to this point, we get a picture of God's grade book and we see that A, slipping into a C minus or something worse. And we imagine God shaking his head in great disappointment at us. I had such great hopes for you, but look at what you've done. And like students, we want to appeal to God and say, isn't there some way I could just do some extra work to shore up my grade and to bring up my average? But brothers and sisters, tonight, hear the gospel. In this class of Christianity, God submits his flawless work for you. You are an A student in God's class, even when you fail his pop quizzes abysmally, even when he tests you, and you get answers so terribly wrong, even then, you are God's prize A student. Because the gospel, Paul says to us tonight, comes the one who does not work, but the one who trusts in the one who works for him. Secondly, Paul says to us tonight in this verse that salvation comes to the ungodly. Notice that Paul simply doesn't say that salvation comes to those without work. He goes beyond this. He says that this salvation is for those who don't want it at all. 
And the word that Paul uses here for ungodly is the word asebe. It's a word that means not only indifference to a life that pleases God, but it means being directly opposed to God's righteousness. The word conveys the direct opposite of those kinds of people who pursue God's righteous ways. It means impious. It means irreverent. It means blasphemous. We've been working through uh, Romans, and for those of you who know the book or have been working uh, through it with us, you will remember in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has been explaining in excruciatingly painful detail how the best of humanity falls short of God's righteousness. The Hebrews who know God's law and who teach God's law the Hebrews who delight in the ceremonies and the rituals of Judaism, the Gentiles who are ignorant of God's law but who have the law written on their hearts and they in fact even obey it. All of these, Paul says, they all fall desperately short. But now in chapter four, when Paul goes to tell us exactly who is justified and who it is that receives God's salvation, he goes back to chapter one, he goes back to that litany, that catalog of vices in chapter one, and he says specifically, the ones that God justifies are the impious. They are the haters of God in chapter one, verse 30. Those who are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And it's significant tonight that when Paul presses this further in chapter 4, and he wants to drive the point really home that God justifies the ungodly, he roots now his argument in the Old Testament. He looks at two Old Testament figures in which this was true. Abraham, the greatest of Israel's fathers, and David, the greatest of Israel's kings. But the first thing he does is he turns to David. And he quotes David's prayer from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David the adulterer. David the schemer. David the murderer. David who, as the story goes in the Old Testament, appears even more villainous than Saul does. David, who is so ignorant of God and so ignorant of his own sin that when Nathan the prophet comes and tells him a story about a little lamb and a great villain, David is so thick that he can't even understand that it's about him. David, who is foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This, Paul says, this is the kind of person who, Paul, who God justifies. He justifies the ungodly. And the marvel of the gospel is that God loves those who hate him. God is profoundly for those who are against him. God delights in showing mercy. You know, I love the phrase from the parable of the prodigal son. While he was still a long way off, we read, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion upon him and ran towards him. You see, God loves those who are far off. 
God has compassion upon those who are not even near him yet. And before the prodigal son even has an opportunity to say all those words he's been confessing and rehearsing on his own, even before a word comes out of his mouth, the father runs to him and embraces him and brings him home. God delights in mercy, Paul says, and even when we grow cold, and even when we're far off, God sees us when we are a long way off, and he will always meet us, and he will always bring us home. You know, sometimes we conjure up an image of the sheep in Jesus' parable, the sheep who's being led astray on his own accord, and he's, he's lost in the mountains. We conjure up an image that he's pining for home, but I'm not so sure the sheep wants to find his way back. I think he's quite content on his own. I'm not even sure he knows that he's lost, but he is lost, the Bible says. And the good shepherd will always leave the 90 and nine, and he will always go after the one who is lost, and he will always find it. And when he finds it, the Bible says that good shepherd will put the sheep on his shoulders rejoicing. God doesn't justify those who are near. He justifies those who are far off. And thirdly tonight, and finally, God's salvation, Paul says, it comes through faith. His faith, Paul says, is counted as righteousness. Now the mistake here is to view this faith as a new kind of work. If only I can believe in the right kind of way then God will accept me. Or if only I can make up constant faithfulness through life, then God will say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But see, Paul deliberately chooses Abraham in this passage to illustrate the quality of faith that brings God's salvation to us. And there's two reasons here. First of all, as we read, it has nothing to do with being Jewish. It has nothing to do with being part of the, the, the uh, religious ceremonies of God's people because Abraham predated circumcision. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly tonight, it has nothing to do with the law because Abraham's faith, Paul says, it predates Moses and it predates Sinai. And so we can't make a faith some kind of new law. If you do this, if you believe, then God will do this. If you are faithful enough to believe, then God will credit your account with enough righteousness to let you enter heaven. That's the wrong way to think about faith. The right way to think about faith is the way that the passage presents it. That saving faith is not something that I do to earn. Saving faith is not about presentation of my worth in any way. It's entirely about reception. Saving faith, as Martin Luther liked to say, is the empty hands that reaches out to God's promise to us. And it's interesting to me, at least, that in all of Paul's talk about Abraham's faithfulness in this passage, and I think some of you might have noticed it, the one act of faith that Paul leaves out is the act of faith we might be most tempted to misconstrue. 
that is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, that moment of heart-wrenching existential obedience. It's hinted at here, but Paul deliberately leaves it out because he wants to underscore for you the truth that God gives us his righteousness not when we do, not even heroically like Abraham, but when we simply believe his promise. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I promise to give all this land to you. And even though your wife and, and you yourself are presently barren, I promise to make you a father of many nations and I will be your God and you will be my people. I will do it all, Abraham. And Abraham rests on God's promise and resting on what God would do, not what Abraham would do, Resting what God, uh, what God would do, Abraham, we read, is made right with God. I hope you can see tonight what Paul is doing here. He's saying that the gospel of grace is a novelty. This is nothing new. The doctrines of grace aren't something that the New Testament alone proclaims. It's not the Old Testament, salvation by works, and then God suddenly has a change of mind and says, actually, you're all terribly disappointing. I'm going to change it all. I'm going to do it all now, now, now it will be by grace. That's not what Paul is teaching. No, Paul says, sheer grace was always God's plan. From Israel's greatest father to Israel's greatest king. And now Jesus has made perfectly clear through his death and through his resurrection how God had planned from the beginning to save us all. And God says to us tonight, I promise you, I promise you, I will give you all this land, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will last forever. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will do this by delivering up my son to pay the debt for your sins, to atone for your sins. And I will raise him up from the dead, having defeated all of the powers that stood against you, so that looking to Jesus, you might hear my promise that I will save you and you may be justified. Brothers and sisters, it is not by works. God comes to those who are still far off. And tonight, he only asks that we believe in his promise. Thomas Cranmer, in his homily on salvation, he says this. He says, listen to faith. Listen to faith as it speaks to you. Faith says, I'm not the one who takes away your sins, but it is Christ only. Faith says, forsake your good virtues, forsake your words, forsake your thoughts, and even forsake the merit of faith itself, because I am God's gift to you. Simply Look to Jesus and to the promise of mercy that comes through him. And so, brothers and sisters, listen to Cranmer tonight. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, tonight the voice of faith says to you, simply look to Jesus because he promises to you mercy and to bring you home to his Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.